we're starting a thing called Opportunity Killers. And, and you may think at the beginning, where's he going with this? But trust me, if you just walk along a little ways, uh, I'll show you how this can kill opportunity in your life. Um, but, but we're going to start from a very basic thing, a very basic thing in our walk with God. Because uh, how many of you know that you need to be reminded sometimes? Um, I, I took a, a thing the other day. Uh, it was like a math entry exam thing. And uh, I realized that it had been 28, almost 30 years since I'd done algebra. I needed to be reminded. Wow, that didn't work out. But anyway, um, sometimes we get so lost in our circumstances that we forget. Come on, is that true? Sometimes we get so lost in the things that are going on around us, our jobs, our families, what's expected that we forget. And, um, and I want you to leave confident this morning that God has put opportunities in front of you that only you, he uniquely created you to accomplish. And so, uh, we're going to lean into that. I want to welcome Berkeley Springs to the, to, uh, to today. It was great to be with you last week and, and, um, just a great church there and thankful for what God is doing. So I want to preface what is, what the, I'm going to read from Acts chapter four today. It's early in the church, early in Acts chapter four is the beginning of the start of the New Testament church. It's very early in it. And I need to give you a little background information because when we start Acts chapter four, verse one, it's going to pick up right in the middle of a story. And I need you to understand a timeline here. Uh, I've used this verse uh, referenced it a couple times in the last couple, maybe once in the last three or four months, but I need you to understand a timeline that has happened leading up to this. So Peter, James, and John were like, well, out of the 12 disciples were the ones that were closest to Jesus had pulled the closest to himself. And uh, the night Jesus was betrayed, the night he was arrested, uh, he goes from the last dinner he has with the disciples he takes them to what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a uh, like an olive grove, and, and, and he goes in there. It goes in there. They're praying, and he takes Peter, James, and John in a little farther in with him. He says, "Hey, I need you to watch and pray with me." Some of you know the story. They fall asleep, the whole nine yards, and um, Peter has been warned that he will deny knowing Jesus, that he, he will deny being associated with Jesus this night. To which Peter had responded, there's no chance that's going to happen. Come on, man, you know we have our tough moments where we're like, oh, oh, not, not on my watch. Well, the truth of the matter is, a big mob shows up to arrest Jesus. The disciples scatter. Peter and John find themselves in a courtyard with an earshot and eyeshot of the trial of Jesus being tried that night. And, and it says they're standing around the fire and Peter is warming his hands by the fire and a girl walks up to him and says, Hey, aren't you with the guy on trial? He says, No, I'm not. I don't know it. No, I did I did Sometimes we do things unconsciously because of the stress in our lives. Is that true? So I, I don't, 
I don't think this was premeditated like Peter was going, oh, that's one. I only got two more shots. I think, I think he was a human being just like us. And he had just, think about this. He wasn't, he wasn't, Peter wasn't a swordsman or anything like that. You got to think he'd just come out of the garden of Gethsemane where he had chopped a guy's ear off. They tried to arrest Jesus. Peter reacts, swings a sword like a little one. Hits a guy on the side of the head, cuts his ear off. Jesus heals him. Now this is all happening in chaos. Now they run off because they realize they're going to arrest him. They arrest Jesus, bring him in before, uh, before the officials and it's dark. And now Peter's standing around a fire. You can imagine his heart racing. You can imagine his blood pressure's up. You can imagine the knot in his stomach. John's with him and they're just standing there trying to figure out what do we do? How do we, how is this going to work out? I don't know what's going to happen. It's crazy. We just had dinner with him. We were just in the garden. I don't understand what's going on. And then a girl walks up to him and says, Hey, aren't you with him? No, I'm not with him. Ask again. I'm not with him. You sound like a Galilean. I think I recognize you from hanging out with him. No, I'm not with, he's emphatic at the last time. One of the gospel writers says he makes eye contact with Jesus. I think this is one of the most devastating scriptures in the Bible. You know what the grace of God to us is? Is that when we sin, we don't have to look Jesus in the face. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Peter standing there denying him emphatically, demanding that he wasn't with him and then looking over and Jesus fixed his gaze on him. Bible says Peter runs off wrecked. Now, Jesus is crucified. The third day he rises again. The Bible tells us that over a period of 40 days, he reveals himself to the disciples and a whole bunch of people throughout Jerusalem. Over 40 days. And you've heard me talk about it before. John records he's walking through, the disciples are locking doors because they're fear of the Jews. And he's walking through locked doors, revealing himself. On the, on the resurrection, that resurrection morning, he walks down the road to Emmaus with a group of them. He, he's revealing himself over and over and over in these convincing ways. Over, so 40 day period, he does this. One of the, one of the last times he does it, Peter and them, not knowing what to do, go back to fishing. And, and there's this encounter where Jesus is on the shore and, and they fished all night and hadn't caught anything. It's real similar to when Jesus first called Peter and Peter doesn't, they don't know what to do. So they hear a voice on the shore say, Hey, throw it out again. One more shot. Peter realizes Jesus on the shore, strips his outer garment off, just jumps in the water, starts, starts freestyling it. You know what I'm saying? Running in. But this is a Peter who less than 40 days before that had denied he knew Jesus. There's an encounter that happens on that beach eating breakfast. And Jesus asked him a couple questions. Now between the, after those 40 days of him revealing himself, the Bible says that he ascends into heaven in front of him. And then he tells them, stay in Jerusalem and wait and pray. And what happens is about 10 days later, 
It's called the day of Pentecost. It was a feast that the Jews had the day of Pentecost. They're praying in the upper room and, and Luke records in acts that they're filled with the Holy spirit. And Peter walks out. The, the locals walking around at the, for the festival are going, what are they? Are these guys drunk? It's nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, I'm all for partying, but it's a little early. Peter comes out and he preaches and he says, this isn't what you think it is. None of us are drunk. This is fulfillment of what the, of what Joel wrote about in the old Testament. This is God pouring out his spirit on his people. Peter preaches and he doesn't preach one of those flowery little sermons where like, God loves you. It's okay. No, he says, you crucified him. We're talking 50 days after Jesus resurrects. Peter is now standing up going, you crucified him. And and Luke records that 3,000 men come to believe in Jesus that day, not including women and children. Because you know, if the man comes to Jesus, he's like, boy, you're going to listen. Coming with Jesus with me. I don't care if Peter, I don't care if Luke counted you or not. I need you to understand the transformation 50 days later. Come on, this is spectacular. You go from running away from a young girl sobbing because you had you had pronounced that you didn't even know Jesus to now standing up proclaiming that he's the Christ. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4. Not only did Peter do that on the day of Pentecost, but you move forward a couple more days and he walks, him and John are walking into the temple and they see a guy who'd been laying there for years, bring him to the gate and lay him down. It's a fixture. You find out in Acts chapter four that he had been over 40 years old. He'd been like that since birth. When Peter and John walked through, he says, um, Hey, do you have any money? Come on. The same guy that two months earlier had denied even knowing Jesus stands in front of this man and says, we're broke just like you are. But here's what we do know in the name of Jesus, stand up. Two months later and the guy stands up. Now this poses a problem because now Peter goes into an area that a big crowd starts gathering together and Peter goes in this area and he starts preaching. You know, he starts preaching again. You crucified Jesus. I'm like, bro, get another sermon. This one ain't working out. He preaches, you crucified Jesus. Jesus came to save you crucified. This was done in Jesus name. And then Luke records, it's gone to 5,000 men now. Women and children. What are we looking at? 15,000 people. Two months after Peter denied even knowing him. I, as a pastor, I think having 15,000 people in the church all of a sudden be kind of cool. But then we pick up Acts chapter 4. Not everybody likes it when God moves. Peter and John heal this man and they start preaching. And here we are, Acts chapter four. Why don't you stand to your feet in honor of reading the word. Acts chapter four, verse one, say amen if you're ready. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now I'm going to pause right there. Sadducees, that group of officials, did not believe in the resurrection of the body from the dead. They didn't believe that as a doctrine. So Peter is preaching that Jesus resurrected from the dead. (laughs) You don't find that funny. (laughs) I walk right into the place where they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And now I'm preaching Jesus resurrected from the dead. Now you see why everybody's torqued off. Greatly annoyed. I think that's an understatement. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. That's a little trick. You ain't getting bailed out in the middle of the night. We'll let them sit in jail overnight. So it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now picture this. All, they are, they're all gathered together. This man has been miraculously healed. I mean, it's turning into a show. All the big, all the big wigs came for this meeting. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Boy, he's covering all of it, isn't he? You crucified him and God raised him from the dead. I want to make sure I make everybody in the building mad. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. This ain't the same Peter. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no farther among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. After all, who wants miracles all the time? But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punishment, punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. God, we pray today that you would remind us of what you've already said. Thank you for it, Lord. 
change us to see every opportunity in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. This is a, this is a very fast transformation. A lot of people think the Apostle Paul's transformation was extremely fast. I would argue, I would argue that Paul's main ministry happened 13 years after his conversion. Peter's two months after denying Christ, two months. Saul of Tarsus on his, on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians has an encounter with Jesus and, and he is radically transformed, but he's introduced to the church in Jerusalem and then some, and, and then some opposition comes into him and Paul, it says Paul leaves and go back to Troas and he's gone over a decade until Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. And so I could argue that Paul's, Paul's reintroduction to the church is way farther away than Peter's. Peter denies Christ three times. The rooster crows. He makes eye contact with Jesus. And two months later, he's preaching Jesus is the Christ. Wow. I, um, this is going to sound weird, but uh, anybody remember, uh, a, a lot of you, we're, we're a family-oriented church, so a lot of you have kids. And, and you know that Beth and I are kind of on the, on the end of raising our kids. At least that's what we're hoping. Um, all our kids are kind of grown up and, and they've, um, two of them have graduated from college. One just graduated from high school and we're, we're just excited about the phase in our life. But anybody, any of you remember when your kids were first born? Any, anybody remember, remember having that feeling where your kid was the smartest? Whatever happened to that? It is true about all parents though, isn't it? Isn't it true about all parents? And because I've been part of the church for so long, I get the privilege of being around people that are constantly having, not the same people, but there's just enough people here. We're constantly having babies. Some of you are constantly having babies. Um, but just there's so there's enough people, three services, two locations, just keep having babies and you're around. And, and one thing is true. Everybody believes at the beginning that their kid is the smartest. It's so crazy. Like, like, oh, look at her. You're like, I know, look at her. Like, she winked at me the other day. And the doctor said, that's so advanced. I'm like, we used to call that colic. Like, I don't know what's, like, get ready, buster. You're going to be staying up all night with those winks. Your kid starts walking at nine months. You're ready to check him into college. But we all have that idea, like, look how smart they are. Look how beautiful they are. And then I get to witness the shift. I get to witness the shift, and this is it. They turn 16. If your kids aren't 16 yet, just wait. I get to witness the shift, and the, and the talk changes from, look how smart they are to, you know that kid came home there. They think they know everything. They think they know everything. Frustration starts. We stop telling people how smart they are. Because typically what happens with us as humans 
is once something gets very difficult, it's hard for us to then continue to talk about it the same way. A dream that you used to have that used to talk about the goal of your life, how excited you were to get in and try it out and start it up and do it. All of a sudden, when it becomes difficult and has robbed you of your joy and money and time, you talk about it differently. You're not proclaiming the same things over it as you used to. You're not ta- it's not as glamorous. It's not, it's not, as, it's not as new. It's, it just gets tired and old. And, and, and the way you used to look at your spouse and the way you used to think about it, it's just different now, isn't it? Because it gets difficult. And, and we end up betraying each other and we, we end up lying and we end up, and, and your kids end up lying and then they lie again and again and again. You know what I realized? That God never really changes what he says about us. God never does this thing like when you're born, God doesn't say, Ben's the smartest kid ever. God doesn't say that. That was awesome. That may be the smartest kid ever. (laughs) The crazy thing about God is he says to everyone, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're formed in the dark. He was there on purpose, fashioning you. Setting the color of your eyes and the color of your hair your height, all the things that are out of your control, God in his infinite ability to create. And then you became frustrating. Every, everybody understands how this happens. We, we fail. We go astray. We don't make good decisions. We sometimes on purpose, a lot of times on purpose, most of the time on purpose, go against God's principles and God's commands. And yet the uniqueness about God is that he doesn't respond like we do to teenagers. He responds the way he always has with you are still unique and extraordinary and you're still mine and God's language doesn't change because of the amount of frustration he's experiencing with us. It's the same. And it's hard for us to grasp because everybody, everybody can remember, everybody can remember growing up and your parents becoming frustrated with you at times. And everybody can remember maybe when you were little, them marching you in front of the family going, oh, look, she's so, she's the prettiest one here. He's so smart. And then all of a sudden you were 17 and a straight up knucklehead. Anybody else? And you started overhearing your parents say, we don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to relate anymore. We don't know what to do. I want to post to you that God never has that circumstance with you. God never changes what he says about you. God never changes what he thinks about you. God never, God, the the fact of the matter, God never changes. And so if God proclaimed it over your life when you were born, if he proclaimed it over your life when you came to, to the saving knowledge of him, it's still true. 
No matter how frustrated you become with you or, or, or you become to other people or life or anything like that. God, whatever he has said about you is true to infinity and beyond. We see a transformation in Peter's life, not because Peter just willed it, but because Peter understood what God thought about it. I'm going to read you two things from two heroes of the faith. And they are the exact opposite statements. A.W. Tozer published tons of good works And he actually had a ton of things published after he was dead. So 1961, after his death, something called the knowledge of the holy was published. And this is a pretty pretty common quote people use. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Only C.S. Lewis wrote in 1941, The Weight of Glory. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weighter burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. I would pose to you this morning that both of these men are right. And if we're gonna if we're gonna see the opportunities in front of them, so today we're gonna talk about what God thinks about us. The next week we're gonna talk about what you think about God. In case you haven't heard it recently, God thinks you're extraordinary. The shocking part about Peter's little trial in front of the Sadducees and the high priest was that they were shocked because they were ordinary men. You know what the truth of the matter is? They had no clue who they were. Because there's nowhere in Scripture where, where God calls any of you ordinary. I don't think it's in God's language to call people ordinary He calls us everything but ordinary. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his, say that with me, own image. In his own image. You realize the most beautiful thing you can lay your eyes on outside of human being, the most beautiful fish, the most beautiful animals, the beautiful sunset, beautiful sunrise, beautiful Beautiful rock form. Anything you can think about setting your eyes on. Nothing else has the claim that it was made in the image of God. We covered that about a month and a half ago. Nothing else can claim that. You are in the image of God. Cats are not. 
In the last chapter of Genesis, it says something about in the image of Satan. It might not be in your Bible, but trust me. They took it out. You're in the image of God. Psalm 139, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. You're extraordinary. Peter in his first letter to the church in chapter 2 verse 9 would say this, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, what you have to understand is those terms are only in the Old Testament reserved for the nation of Israel. But now, Peter realizes, hey listen, God has, through Jesus, brought everybody into the family. So he's telling people that are not Jewish, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. There's nothing ordinary about you. There's nothing ordinary. You're a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. He's saying you have this title. You're royalty. Over and over the scripture paints a picture that each one of us is unique and uniquely valuable to God. Paul calls us the workmanship of God. God is not ordinary. He doesn't perform ordinary tasks. And he never looks at you as ordinary. The reason those rulers were shocked about Peter is because they thought differently about Peter than God did. God was not shocked at what Peter did. Peter was doing what God wanted him to do. What God had set out from the beginning for Peter to do. What the opportunity that God put in front of Peter. And the only way Peter could miss it is to think like everybody else. Just ordinary. Nothing special here. Peter and John were not living as people who believed that God thought they were ordinary. They were convinced that God looked at them as extraordinary and specifically made for this purpose. You find God doing this all throughout the Old Testament as well when he calls Moses. Moses had murdered a man in Egypt. He was living on the backside of the desert with his father-in-law. He probably thought, well, it's over now. Forty years. When God approaches him in Exodus chapter 4, sets a bush on fire. Moses realizes the bush is on fire, but it's not being burned up. So he walks over to it. He hears the voice of God. Hey, take your shoes off. This is holy ground you're standing on. And Moses standing there in shock. In Exodus chapter 4, he's trying to get Moses. He's trying to get Moses to go do his will. He's trying to, does Moses see the opportunity in front of you? But Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. What's he telling God? I'm ordinary. I'm just, I can't do this. I'm ordinary. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Remember we read Psalms? I fashioned you, specifically you. So he says, now therefore go and I will be with you, your mouth and teach you what you're supposed to be. You're not ordinary. There's something extraordinary in you that I put there. I know I'm God. He does the same thing to a man named Gideon in the book of Judges. 
Gideon's threshing wheat. He's afraid of the Midianites and he's threshing wheat down in the wine press, which if you know anything about that, it's not, it's not where you thresh wheat. He's basically hiding from the enemy. And so he's doing everything in concealment. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon's like, I'm just ordinary here, just as afraid as everybody else. And the angel of the Lord says, that's not how God sees you. Peter realized, even though he had denied Christ, that what God had said about him was still true. The second reason is this, because Peter had confidence that he was forgiven. One of the things that's holding a lot of people back, and I'd venture to say in a crowd this size, there's a lot of people here, is that God has proclaimed you forgiven, but you have not accepted it. You know, one of the most selfish things you could do is keep from forgiving yourself. God has forgiven you. Watch what he does with Peter. Remember, remember I told you, Peter, they meet Jesus on the seashore. Jesus already died, resurrected from the dead. Now he's revealing himself over a period of 40 days. And Peter and, and the guys were fishing and they didn't catch anything. And they have experience with him. And he's on the seashore again. And they end up eating breakfast with Jesus. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Could you imagine this is the first conversation This is the first real conversation the Bible's recording of them having since Peter has denied him. Now, now I need you to lean into this just for a second. This is the first real conversation we're seeing. Could you imagine the tension that Peter's having in his, man, I'm glad we caught the fish, but this is going to be weird. They're sitting around, you know, eating the fish like, hey man, it's a good day. It's kind of sunny out and I think it's going to be humid. Yeah. Humid today. I don't know what the fish is going to be like tomorrow, but if Jesus, you want to stop by right at the end and fill the nets up real quick for us, that'd be another good one. (laughs) Yeah. Could you pass the water since Jesus is here? (laughs) Having a conversation, you know, the angst is building in Peter. Jesus looks over at him and says, Peter, do you love me? You know I do. He says, um, feed my lambs. He asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And it's like the same response. You know, I do, Lord. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, to him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. You notice these are action things that he's telling him to do. Feed, tend, go to the third verse. The third one there, he said, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third. Peter's like, oh, come on. He said, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You know what the crazy part is? When you're forgiven, you see the opportunity. There's an action part of being forgiven. It's because now you know that God says, now you're forgiven. Now act like you're forgiven. So this is crucial. And Peter is not walking up to the man at the gate called beautiful. He's not walking up to a crippled man as a broken man. 
He's not walking up to a crippled man going, hey, bro, we all got our problems, man. I'm just trying to get past mine. I don't know what to do. I denied Jesus two months ago, and now I'm not sure what he's going on. And I'm just broke as you are, and I have no idea. He's not walking up to him as a man unforgiven. He's not walking up to him as a broken man. He's walking up to him as a man who's been reconciled with Jesus, forgiven, forgiven himself, and called back into the ministry. So when he gets up in front of the man who needs help, he's been forgiven. If you know that you've been made right with God, then you can do a thing called calling on him. John teaches us that if we're in him, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If we're in him, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in me, everything is possible. So he says, if you are in me and I in you, then ask whatever you will in my name and it'll be given to you. So Peter did not walk up to the guy at the gate called beautiful like, well, I don't know, man. Me and God are kind of on the outs because I did that whole denial thing. I'm not sure he's true. You know, he said he forgave me, but I'm not sure. Just, I'm, I can't get over it. I can't get over the mistake I made. I can't. It just, I've been beating myself up for the last two months. I can't believe I did it. The guy walks, the guy that walks up to the crippled man is a forgiven man. Some of you need to know that the opportunities that have been dying, laying in front of you are not because Jesus hasn't forgiven you, but you haven't forgiven yourself. If, if you are faithful to confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You remember we talked the other week about the woman caught in adultery? Remember, there's a little thing about that that fits into this, where Jesus, where Jesus says, is there anyone here to condemn you? You know what some of you do? You stand up and you pull the rock out of your own pocket and throw it at yourself. Jesus can run all the accusers off and you're your worst. Is there anyone here to condemn you? Well, are we talking about me? Because if we are, I got a few rocks I'll just throw at myself. I'd like to keep this thing going. It's what I'm used to. It's what I, it's why I never amounted to anything. It's why, it's why I always have difficulty in relation. It's why all these things keep happening over and over and over again. But I'm telling you the biggest opportunity killer in your life could be that you won't forgive you. Because when he tells the lady, is there anyone here to condemn you? And she says, no, he says, The same thing that Peter said, get up and go. There's an action word to it. There's action there. Don't don't just lay there and think about it. Don't just lay there and and, and wallow in it. Don't just lay there and go, well, I don't know. You know, uh." no, he says, get up, go. Lady, there's opportunities for you now. You've been forgiven. You don't want to miss them. You've been forgiven. Now get up. Don't do that again and take advantage of life. Just gave you another shot. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Some of you need to be reminded of that every day. You've been forgiven. Forgiveness is not a process. It's a moment. That's because you're used to seeing forgiveness in the light of human eyes. Remember, we're not talking about what people think about you. We're talking about what God thinks about you. 
You're used to forgiveness taking a minute. You're used to your spouse going, well, we'll see. Well, we'll see. You're used to your kids saying it. You're used to your people at work. Well, you know, it's going to take a while for me to forgive you. It's going to take a while. You know what's never come out of the mouth of God? It's going to take a while. Peter was not operating like a guy who thought forgiveness took a while. He stands up and proclaims with confidence the name of Jesus, the same name that two months earlier he had denied knowing. That sounds like somebody who had embraced forgiveness and embraced his position and said, God, this is what God still thinks about me. He still thinks what Jesus said back in the day where he said, Peter, your name is now Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Peter wasn't thinking about, oh, I don't know if I can do this. He was going, hey, he said that about me. And he didn't take it back when we were having breakfast on the seashore. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't look at Peter on the seashore and go, hey man, you know about that thing I said, build my church on, on the rock and all that stuff? You know, it wasn't true. I was just trying to boost your confidence a little bit, but don't get too cocky. Last thing I need you is walking into the temple, healing people on, you know, say, I don't need that. I don't need you acting like you got power. If Satan can convince you that you're not forgiven and it's taken a while and Jesus can't make up his mind and all that stuff, he, you miss every opportunity put in front of you for the next 10 years. There is no process. You're forgiven. When you confess, you're forgiven. Stand up. I'm going to leave you with this. I don't know if you can tell this morning I'm a little passionate about this, but can I just say this? I'm tired of having the same conversation. The church, the church can't get out of our own way because we forget everything God ever said to us. He already said you were overcomers. He already said you were forgiven. He already said you were extraordinary. He already said you are empowered. He already said it. Half of our life is figuring out how to live in what he's already told us. Jesus says, John chapter 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the father. He said, if I go away, I'm going to send the power to you. Amen. He said, the authority, the power will now be in you to do what I've been doing. That didn't change. That didn't sound circumstantial. That didn't sound, he called you extraordinary. He called you forgiven and he's called you empowered. Acts chapter one, verse eight, but you receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Peter's operating like a man, not an ordinary man. He's operating like somebody that God had extraordinarily gifted to do what he was doing. And every single person in the building is the same. There's nothing ordinary about you. You've been forgiven. He's empowered you to do what he's put in front of you. These, these good things that he's laid out for us to do. He's empowered you to do it. You're uniquely gifted and empowered to pull it off for his glory. Can we pray like that this morning?
Maybe it's been a long time since anybody said you were extraordinary. God is speaking that over your life today, that he fashioned you on purpose. God is speaking that over your life today. There is nothing by chance. The God of all the universe created you in his image, unique and uniquely gifted. And then when we couldn't do anything about our sin, he said, you're forgiven through Jesus. Just accept it. You're forgiven. Confess your sins. If you're faithful to confess it to him, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And then he said, I'll send the Holy Spirit and I'll empower you. Peter, two months later, is acting like an extraordinarily forgiven, empowered person, seeing the opportunity in front of him. Can that be our prayer this morning? Lord, when I show up to work on Monday, let me in a be extraordinarily forgiven, empowered person to see the opportunity in front of me. Let me see it the way, let me hear what you say over me. Let me hear the truth about who I am. Regardless of what anybody else says, regardless of circumstance, let me hear the truth of what you say about me. And then let me walk in that, Lord. Let me walk in that tomorrow, in my work, in my home. Let me walk in that tomorrow. Thank you for it. Thank you for it. Come on, could you just lift your hands and surrender to him all across the building? Thank him for reminding you of what he thinks about you today. Confirm it in your heart. Let it sink in what he thinks about you today over and over and over again. Come on, lift it up to him.